You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Jesus was a storyteller, as you know. In all of his scores of stories, Jesus never gave more than one character a name. And the name he gives the character in the story we're looking at today is Lazarus. Now, what does Lazarus mean? In Greek, the word Lazarus means God is a helper. God is a helper. The way that God is a helper, when you read the whole Bible and step back and and see it, is through relationships. Relationships is God's primary strategy for delivering help into other people's lives. Community, friendship, family. And we can see this most clearly through the incarnation. Jesus shows up, the Son of God takes on flesh through human relationship that God transforms the world. We see at the beginning of the story in creation, not good for man to be alone. God has a helper for the first human being and asks that first human being to be a helper to the other. At the end of the story, redemption, God commissions a bunch of people, human beings, just like you and me with all of our flaws, calls us to church and says, you go be my help to the world. God is our helper, but he's doing it through relationship. Now, this is where we start to see some of our doubts. Not just that God is a helper, but that relationships, that relationships, that relationships is how he gets the help to land. And I say this as a recovering individualist, and I say it knowing I'm speaking to Northwesterners. You know, we love our independence up here, but be very careful with that. You may be embodying doubt in the way that you choose to live. Now, let's try to understand this. We're going to go back to our Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, uh, in the book that we've been studying together. Charles Taylor argues that something fundamental has changed in the way that we think about relationships as we've moved through history from the ancient time to the modern time, the secular age, as he calls it. And uh, he refers to it as the great disembedding. We no longer see ourselves today as embedded in society that is embedded in a cosmos, that is embedded in a spiritual reality. No longer, now we are just disembedded individuals, just kind of floating around. That's how we see ourselves. We don't think about it, but it's how we imagine life to be. He writes, everyone therefore senses that something has changed. Often this is experienced as loss, a breakup. A majority of Americans believe that communities are eroding. Families, neighborhoods, even the polity. By the way, he's writing this in 2007. But our polity, uh, we experience as eroding. He says, they sense that people are less willing to participate, to do their bit, and less trusting of others. Hmm, does that sound familiar? Okay, here's the story as Taylor described. Remember, we're looking at these five axes. This is the people axis. And this is how uh, things are changing, the way we think about people and relationships. In ancient times, the individual was radically subordinated to the whole. The only reason the individual exists is for the the collective, for the the, the tribe, okay? Then there's a shift by the time we get to the biblical era. Now, Revelation discloses to us that every individual matters for themselves, actually. Uniquely created by God, deeply loved by God, redeemed by Jesus Christ. And humans are called into this interdependent, dynamic 
relationship with one another that we call in the New Testament koinonia, which is our word for sharing, or sh- like sharing hope, sharing life together, koinonia. It's uh, really the image is a family. Every member matters. And then there's another shift. We get to our day, the modern era. Now the value is really on freedom, uh, being unencumbered, being unburdened by any commitment to anything or anyone. Uh, the, the individual now has become preeminent, sovereign. The self is supreme. If there is society, society really now is, as we understand it, just a collective of willing individuals. Okay, so you can see the change. This is where our doubt comes from around our relationships. The problem is that today we've come to doubt the very thing that we most need to experience God's help and to be agents of God's help. Relationships. Okay, now Jesus seems to anticipate this problem, as you might imagine, and he tells a story about a guy named Lazarus. Let's look at the story. Please open up your Bible to uh, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Grab the pew Bible in front of you. If you didn't bring one, it's the black book there. Uh, you'll find on page 851. Please stay seated. I'm going to read the text for us just to give you a chance to try to imagine your, in, yourself in the scene that Jesus describes. So if it's helpful, you can close your eyes and just listen, uh, but listen carefully. You're hearing God's holy word. <clears throat> Jesus says this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and had feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. But the poor man died and was carried away to the, by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he's comforted here. And you are in agony. Now, besides all this, between you and us, is a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. And he said, well, then, Father, I beg you to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, well, they have Moses. And the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Wow. Strange story. Lazarus, though. Lazarus. God is our helper. And then two men. Both men need help at different points in time. Interestingly enough, at different points in time, each man will have the help that the other one needs, but won't deliver it. 
because there's a barrier that's preventing relationship. In the first case, it's a gate. In the second case, it's a chasm. They are both tragically isolated from one another. Now, you won't be surprised, neither would the first hearers of this story, that the poor man needs the help of the rich man. We understand that. But here's the surprise of the story, that when they both die and the veil is kind of turned pulled back, we see that the rich man needs the help of the poor man. Dip the finger. It's hot. Think about that for a second. The rich man needs the help of the poor man. That's the surprise in the story. And in fact, his need at the end of the story is much, 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 we could say infinitely greater than the need of the poor man during lifetime. So I, I hope you catch this. This is why, as I look at the story, here's what I think the big idea is, that the person you need might just be the person lying at your gate in need. Did you get that? Did you get that? Let me say that again. The person that you need to receive God's help might just be the person lying at your gate in need. Now, that's a stretch. This is hard to understand. So I'm going to unpack this a little bit, but I want you to understand right at the beginning that the barrier to relationship is the gate, and the gate for you and me is our doubts, our resistance to, our questions about relationship. Let me share with you today three ways that God might help you through relationship with someone in need. Because if the man lying at the gate of this rich man is truly Lazarus, God is a helper, then the only way he can find his help is to open the gate and have relationship with Lazarus. All right, three implications of this text. First of all, the person in need gives you, number one, a moment of ministry, a moment of ministry. And you need this. This helps you. The person in need helps us connect with God's mission, our purpose for being in this life at this stage of history. To get the story, you really have to get the background behind it. And what's in the background of this story is Abraham. Did you notice that as I read that? Abraham is all over this story. Uh, Abraham. Uh, the guy dies. First thing he sees. It's not God. It's not Jesus. It's not Mary or Peter. It's Abraham. There he is. And he calls him my father. And Abraham calls this rich man, my son. See, this is all about the family of Abraham. And I want to suggest to you, what, what do we know about the family of Abraham? That it was a family on mission together. Abraham is famous for having a mission. He's the first person that God called on this grand rescue mission to restore and to redeem all of creation. Abraham, Genesis 12, I, I've called you to bless you. I've called you to bless your family because your family is going to be like no other family that ever existed. Your family is going to be an expansive family. Your family is going to bless all the other families of the earth. This is a rescue mission. I'm blessing you to be a blessing. To everybody else. See, see, that's what's in the background of this. The rich man is not engaging in the mission which is his right by the promise of a God who's got a rescue operation. Now, I realize uh, I'm giving you an alternate, alternative reading of this passage. My guess is that very few of you have understood this story in this way. Most of us, when we read this story, the doubt that bites us in the nose is our doubt about heaven and hell. 
And we have those doubts. But I just want to tell you, that's not what this story is about. Not to Jesus. Not to his hearers. Let me give you three quick reasons why I think that's the case. First of all, uh, the rich man doesn't end up in hell. He ends up in Hades. Now, if you're reading the NIV, it's translated hell, but the original word there is Hades, and that's really an important distinction because Hades is not hell uh, to Jesus' hearers. Hades is a Greek concept of death. It's where people go when they die. It's the equivalent of the Old Testament Sheol. The Jews used a circumlocution for death. He was gathered to his parents. Okay, that's what they're talking about, just dying and being with your family, actually. Not hell. The second reason I say this is uh, because I'm losing my place in my notes. That's why I'm saying this. So let me give you four reasons. So the third reason, after I find my place in the notes, is that Jesus is talking more about um, something that his hearers, who have all kinds of beliefs about heaven and hell, naturally assume. It seems, scholars say, that he's speaking out of an assumption of this kind of folklore in his time. Folklore about what happens when we die, okay? And if it's not that, it would be odd because the picture he gives us in this one story is not a picture we get of heaven and hell anywhere else in the scripture. In fact, it would be inconsistent with the global notion, the frequently described picture of the afterlife in the Bible, which describes the return of of the Messiah, which describes a cataclysmic renewal of heaven and earth and a wonderful recreation of all that is, restoring it to all that God intends. See, that's the picture that the Bible paints of the afterlife. The third and final reason is that the destination here in the story to which both men hope to attain is not heaven. Did you notice that? He doesn't get to heaven. He gets to Abraham. He gets to Abraham, the bosom of Abraham. Now, bosom in, in, implies intimacy, uh, like um, Jesus and John sort of reclining together at the Lord's Supper. And many people think that this is a picture of the messianic banquet, actually, with uh, now this Lazarus leaning on the breast of Abraham, where this great family has been restored. But the point is that when you and I read this passage out of our individualism, we ask the question, hey, how do I get to heaven? Like, that's all we care about, or that's all we feel anxious about. That's not the question that Jesus knows his hearers are asking. They're asking, how do we get to Abraham? How do we become true Jews? How do we lay a hold of the full identity, the full purpose for our lives? That's what they're asking. And Jesus is going, yeah, that's the question. You are blessed to be a blessing. Don't make the mistake that this rich man, if Abraham were talking to the rich man before the story started, he'd say, man, open that gate. Because there's a guy that is lying at that gate who's in need, and he is your brother. You don't know it, but he is your brother. Open that gate. He's not asking to live in the house. He's just asking from the crumbs that fall from your table, would you share with him? Would you connect in relationship with him? Because I am his helper, and he is your helper, and he's going to help you connect with the mission for which you were created. And friends, you and I have a mission too. It's the same mission. Jesus tells a story to call them into the same mission. I am trying to bless you so that you can bless others. I make you my helper. And when you meet the needs of others, that helps you know you're a part of something that's bigger than yourself. A moment of ministry. That's what we get from someone in need. 
But there's a second thing, and it's this, a lesson in love. The person in need helps us connect with God's love. Now look, uh, Jesus tells a story to people who have disordered affections. Uh, their loving is misdirected. Let me show you that. Whenever you have these one of these stories, you always want to go, what's in the context? So ask yourself, who is Jesus speaking to when he tells this story? Why does he tell it this way? Why does he make it up? Why does he tell it at all? Look back at verse 14. We find out in verse 14 who he's speaking to. It's the Pharisees, and now Luke, importantly, adds, who were lovers of money. They were lovers of money. That's who they were. That's why Jesus tells this story, because their affections are misdirected. They're aiming in the wrong direction. Man, money will never love you back. Doesn't matter how much you have, it does not know your name. You think it's your caregiver, but when you get in trouble, money is not looking in your direction saying, what can I do to help you? It's asking, what can you do to get more of me? Turns you into its servant. Jesus understands this about our wallets. And he wants to unhook our affections from our checkbooks and hook them on God. And that's what a person in need can do for us. I have a friend who came back from a mission trip. He said it was a great trip. It was a week-long thing, but I was absolutely exhausted at the end. I was looking forward to that nine-hour flight, just needed to sleep. And so I rolled up my hoodie and uh, just you know, got ready to crash when the person next to me in the middle seat sat down with a big crash, really heavy guy, wedged himself into the seat, and he looked over at me. He goes, you know what? This isn't going to work. Uh, I think I'd have more space. We would all have more space if I could sit on the window. Uh, would you mind trading seats with me? And my friend thought, no. Um, you know, I needed that sleep. I was serving the Lord all week long. I was just exhausted. I needed to recover. So I, I, you know, I said no to him. And then the guy insisted and kept asking, please, I really, you know, I think we'd be happier. It's a long flight. And he said, no, 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 no. Finally, he offered him a hundred dollar bill. He said, I'll give you a hundred dollars if you give me, if you give me your seat. And my friend, that's when it clicked for me. He said to me, he said, you know, I realized it was like, this is like, oh my gosh, do I need to pay, be paid to love my neighbor? I'm a Christian. I'm coming back from a mission trip where I've been serving Jesus. I'm like, do I need to be paid to love God enough to love somebody that he loves and to switch seats with him? How hard is that? And he's like, totally convicted. So he his head, with his head long, hung low, he slid over to the other seat and took the $100 bill. <laughs> My advice to him is these days, you know, hold on a little longer. You're going to get more. But at least he's honest. So look, why is it so hard to love people? Why are we so hard to love? Here's the, que- here's the answer to that question. It's because you and I confuse independence for freedom. We think that to really have freedom, we have to be independent of any obligation to anybody else. That's why we resist loving people. Now, Charles Taylor speaks of what he calls negative freedom, because I'm not sure we get this right. We think that we have to be independent to be free, and there is a kind of freedom of which that's true. Negative freedom is, is freedom to make whatever choice you choose to make at any given intersection. So you're riding your bike, and you come to a big intersection, let's say there are five corners, you can go any different way. Negative freedom says you can just choose. You can just go whatever one you want to go to. There are no external constraints on that choice. You're free. Okay, that, that, that is a kind of freedom. It's negative freedom. But I want to tell you that's not the kind of freedom Jesus is offering us. Jesus is offering what he calls constructive freedom. It's the, it's the freedom he's talking about when he says, if you're my disciple, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
It's the kind of freedom that the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So don't be subject to a yoke of slavery anymore. You come to an intersection and you want constructive freedom, you put an internal constraint on yourself in order to make a better choice to choose the good. Like, if you don't have... If you don't have constructive freedom, you're not really free because you go to that intersection every time you choose to go to the right. Why? Because that's the, where the liquor store is and there's something inside of you. Even though you, you think you're free to go left every single time, you keep going right. And if you want real freedom, you have to put voluntarily accept constraints on your choices so that you over time can cultivate the affections that will allow you to actually want to make good choices. We were talking about this in the school of love. Anybody knows this who really wants to do something they can't naturally do, like run a 10K. You're going to put constraints on your schedule in order to, to practice. So you want to play the cello. You're going to put constraints on all kinds of things in order to practice, practice, practice. Right? You want to be free of your addiction. Well, you're going to have to put some constraints on your life in order to do that. You want to be gluten-free. <laughs> you need some, you know, that's going to take some discipline. But over time, you're going to be able to want better things. And ultimately, this, the ultimate example of this is love. Anybody who wants to have authentic love has to get into a relationship with someone on the basis of service. I'm willing to serve you. I'm willing to uh, voluntarily put constraints on my life for your welfare, to seek your interests first. And that's mutual and authentic love relationship. And Jesus is trying. When you come up against someone who's hard to love, you are building up your love capacity. It's like going to the gym. This person in need that you allow to be a burden to you is an opportunity for you to lift their weight in service to them, to love them. Now, I know we're hardest to love when we're a burden. I, I'm a burden oftentimes, and I'm hard to love at that point. But if you love me in that moment when I'm hard to love, you're taking me to the gym. It's not that I'm spotting, it's that I'm the dumbbell, right? And you're lifting me. And what's happening is you're becoming a burden-bearing brother, a burden-bearing sister. I love what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about brotherhood. Uh, he says, it's only when he's a burden that another person is a brother. Think about that. Family is hard. You, but you, you don't have family with people until you're willing to lift them up when it's hard. And the more you do that, the more you increase your capacity to love. By the way, that's what our lives are meant for right now. The Bible tells us that faith is good, but it goes away. Hope is great, but it goes away. But love, love is the constant thing. Love is the eternal thing. Love is your destiny. You're never more yourself than when you're loving. And even and especially when it's hard. And so this life, however many years the Lord gives you until he returns or calls you home, is about gaining capacity to love, directing your affections well, so that when you get to eternity, you have full, maximum love capacity. That's what's going on. Your eternal character is being forged right now, oftentimes at a gate. Three, the person in need gives you a gateway for grace. A gateway for grace. A moment of ministry, a lesson in love, finally, a gateway for grace. The person in need helps us connect with God's grace. In the end, the rich man will come to grace. We'll say it's too late, but remember, it's only a story. Jesus is trying to make a point for real people. Uh, and we see that at the end of the story. Uh, what does he say? Verse 24. First time he speaks, he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Grace. I need grace. 
And, 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 and the readers go, ah, there it is. Absolutely. We are all helpless. And, and if it takes a person in need at your gate to get to the place where you realize, I am absolutely as helpless as that person with dogs licking his sores, it's a good thing. We all are. Spiritually speaking, we are all poor. We are all sick. We are all outsiders. Have you ever wondered why it is that Christians care for the poor? Why we just want to care for the poor? It's true of Christians, and it's been true from the very beginning. In fact, I love this. Um, there's a letter written by one of the Roman emperors early on uh, complaining about Christians. He calls us impious Galileans. He says, the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. And they did, the early Christians. They were rescuing uh, uh, disclaimed children, adopting orphans, buying people out of slavery, caring for the sick, serving the poor, educating girls. Why? Because God is a helper. And no one knows it more than somebody who has been eternally helped by being forgiven for their sins. It's not just that not caring for the poor is a sin. It's that in every way, this man comes before the goodness of God and realizes, oh my God, my whole life has been an expression of my need. And now I, now what I, what I need most is mercy, is grace. And it's true for us. They say of Jesus, he came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owe a debt we cannot pay. And God has done that for us in Jesus. He's helped the helpless. So when we open the gate to meet someone else's need, we meet Jesus, meeting not only their need, but ours as well. And we remember our own experience of grace. That's why, all of this is why I tell you that I think the point of this story and our challenge, our invitation today is this. The person you need might just be the person lying at your gate today in need. So who's your Lazarus? Think about your life. Think about your day. Who is your Lazarus going to be today? Is it that person you step by as you get on the bus? Is it somebody who needs a ride to SeaTac or is going to be moving? Is it somebody who needs someone they know will take their call in the middle of the night or shoulder off of their shoulder to cry on? I don't know. But whoever your Lazarus is, they will be for you a moment of mission. You will connect with your strategic assignment. God has put you into that person's life and blessed you in front of that person so that you can bless them and be a blessing to them. Whoever your Lazarus is, they will be today your lesson in love. However hard it is to bear their burden, that will increase the capacity of your heart to love them and God. We do a lot of memorials in this room, and I can tell you, every time I've been in this room and watched it fill, we've never heard a word about how much money somebody left behind. Not a word. What you hear about? Family. Now, this person loved me enough to convince me I was family. And how their love grew over their life. And whoever your Lazarus will be, he will be a gateway to grace for you. As you help that person, you will say, I was just as helpful, as helpless as he is, as she is, before the throne of God's grace, and he was abundantly generous with me. Finally, the story ends. Jesus says, send someone to my brothers. He adds that piece. He, the rich man says, send someone to my brothers. 
which means, I think, send somebody to my city to care for the poor. Send somebody to my city to bind up the wounded. Then my unbelieving, doubting brothers will believe that this is all real. And I tell you, there's nothing our city needs to see more than a community of people living together as family who turn to those who have needs and say, come with me, join you in meeting those needs because I'm just like you and we are family. And if that all feels hard to you, take heart because Jesus has made us a great promise. In Revelation chapter 1, he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see I'm alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Let's pray. Oh, risen Jesus, we don't see your glory before us with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith, we reach out to you and to the one you call Father and to the one you've sent into our lives as Holy Spirit. Thank you for your grace, for your love. Thank you for the privilege of, of ministry and joining you in your rescue mission. We pray today for ourselves that we would be animated by the risen Savior and his spirit as a family on mission. Bless not only us, but bless us more so that we might more fully bless our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.